0: Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. So glad that you're able to join us for our talk on prayer and friendship today with Father Carlton Jones. Before we begin, let's start with a prayer in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, enkindle in them the fire of your love, send forth your spirit and they shall be created. Let us pray. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of your faithful, help us by the same Spirit to be truly wise and ever rejoice in your consolation. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom. St. John the Beloved. Blessed John Henry Newman. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. It's a great honor and a pleasure to introduce to you today the prior of our community at St. Dominic's uh, in downtown Washington, D.C., Father Carlton Jones. Father Carlton uh, was formerly a priest of the Episcopal Church here in the United States before he became a member of the Catholic Church and joined the Dominican Order. He studied at Yale University uh, and, of course, is steeped in the erudition and the charm uh, of the Anglican patrimony. Uh, His fascination with John Henry Newman, paired with his Dominican love for St. Thomas Aquinas, I have no doubt will be a major feature of his talk today. After joining the Catholic Church, Father Carlton went on to pursue uh, doctoral studies at the Angelicum, receiving a doctorate in sacred theology, writing on John Henry Newman's three papers, defending his ideas to the Roman theologians. Father Carlton is beloved throughout our province, the province of St. Joseph, for his wisdom and his great spirit of fraternity and generosity. He's going to speak today on one of the most essential spiritual topics that's quintessential not only of St. Thomas Aquinas, but of blessed John Henry Newman, and that is spiritual friendship. Perhaps most importantly, our friendship with God. I hope that as you listen to his talk, you'll come to appreciate the qualities that have endeared Father Carlton to so many of his confreres and to so many of the souls he's touched over the years. Without further ado, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Father Carlton Jones.
1: Brother Henry and I are both a long way from the microphone, uh, being so tall, so I want you to let me know if it's difficult to hear me. Please don't be shy. Uh, raise your hand and say speak up. And I want to begin by thanking uh, your pastor on his way home from Rome, Father Pollard and Father Sina, and my confrere, Brother Henry, for giving me such a nice introduction, and asking me to speak to you on this theme of prayer and friendship. As my Dominican brothers know, I am particularly devoted to blessed John Henry Newman, as I hope some of you are. And like all Dominicans, I've studied the theology of St. Thomas Aquinas, though I'm a long way from having mastered it. So I will draw on both of these holy men both these saints to talk about the Christian meaning of friendship. But first, let me say something about Christian prayer, and then I can segue into the theme of friendship by way of some observations about the challenges to both prayer and friendship that come from our culture. The best definition of prayer that I know is the simplest, it is that given by Father, our Dr. Ralph Martin in his book, The Fulfillment of All Desire. He says, prayer is at root simply paying attention to God. Prayer is at root simply paying attention to God. That covers the whole spectrum from formal liturgy to silent meditation. Of course, paying attention to God presumes believing in him, and turning to Him from whatever is competing for our attention. Now one very severe challenge to prayer, defined in that simple way, is brilliantly described in an essay by a friend of mine, Patricia Snow, entitled, Look at Me, in the May 2016 edition of First Things. She observes that quotation, on the street and in the office, at the dinner table and on a remote hiking trail, in line at the deli and pushing a stroller through the park, people go about their business bent over a small glowing screen, as if praying. On a recent transatlantic flight flying into the morning for the duration of the 12-hour flight, No passenger was permitted to raise the shade of the window next to him, lest the light from the sun interfere with the screens of the subdued passengers. Sixty-four years ago, in her novel Wise Blood, Flannery O'Connor saw all of this coming. Describing the beautiful movements of a night sky over the artificially lit street in a small town, she commented dryly, no one was paying any attention to the sky. This inattention to the real in favor of the virtual has been going on long enough that people are beginning to worry about its effects. Nearly every week in the New York Times, there's an opinion piece about the adverse effects of technology on everything from people's posture to their attention spans from their ability to process information to their capacity for both healthy relationships and healthy solitude. A university professor, friend of mine, reports that some of her colleagues are banning computers from classes and requiring students to take notes by hand because it turns out the students on laptops aren't taking notes at all They aren't listening, sifting, and prioritizing what they hear, but instead they're trying to transcribe lectures verbatim, as if they were court stenographers. In another essay called From Army of One to Band of Tweeters, an army major writes that his soldiers on social media are not building ponds of trust and group identity with other soldiers, that they don't know how to work together, they don't have each other's backs, which means that they go into combat at greater risk. An epidemic of inattention is being spread by all the attention that's being lavished upon small glowing screens. Inattention, that is, to what is really there, before us, around us, or even within us. It's the virtual in competition with the real. What is present on our smartphones is within our control, whereas what is really there is not. So the small glowing screen is winning its competition with the sun. God, who may be called the invisible sun that never sets, think of that for a moment, the invisible sun that that never since, the most real of all realities, God suffers from the world's current epidemic of inattention. Listen again to what Mrs. Snow has to say about it. Quote, For all the current concern about technology's effects on human relationships, little or nothing is being said about its effects on man's relationship with God. If human conversations are endangered, what of prayer? A conversation like no other. All of the qualities that human conversation requires, patience and commitment, an ability to listen, and a tolerance for aridity, prayer requires in greater measure. A book like Donald Haggerty's Contemplative Provocations reminds us just how much time, silence, and patience with apparent absence are preconditions for a relationship with the divine. This relationship, this conversation, the church exists to restore. Everything in the traditional church is there to facilitate and nourish this relationship. Everything breathes, look at me. For centuries, Catholic churches have been places of prayer and recollection, deep reading and peaceful communion, places of limited social interaction where the mind can wander and the nerves relax, quiet places far from the noise and incessant demands of the world. Our parish churches' thick walls and subdued lighting, her precisely paced liturgies, and the narrowing sight lines of her nave, drawing the eye to the altar and the tabernacle behind it, everything in the church is designed to ward off distractions and render man still and listening. Everything is there to draw him into the church's maternal embrace so that she can fill him with God. It's a beautiful phrase. Everything is there to draw him into the church's maternal embrace so that she can fill him with God. She's making a reference there to our own Dominican Church of St. Mary in New Haven, where she's a member. Let us agree that paying attention is simply the most basic form of love. Paying attention is simply the most basic form of love. Then our Lord's dual command to love God and neighbor requires a kind of attention to other people that's comparable with the intention that we give in prayer to God. Mrs. Snow concludes, quote, "'Besides this way of prayer and contemplation that has been described as a mutual gaze, I look at him, he looks at me, there is a second path to God equally enjoined by the church and that is the way of charity to the neighbor, but not the neighbor in the abstract. Christianity is always inveighed against telescopic philanthropy. Who is my neighbor? A lawyer asks Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus' answer is, the one you encounter on the way. This encounter cannot be elided or put on hold, pushed to the periphery or dissolved into an abstraction. Man cannot vault over the particular to reach the universal or bypass the present to seize the future. Virtue is either concrete or it is nothing. Man's path to God like Jesus' path on the earth always passes through what the Jesuit Father de Cossade called the sacrament of the present moment, which we could equally call the sacrament of the present person, the way of incarnation, the way of humility, the way of the cross. Both of these privileged paths to God, equally dependent on a quality of undivided attention and real presence, are vulnerable to the distracting eye candy of our technologies, end quote. The distracting eye candy of our technologies enhances the effect of what's becoming an increasing challenge to friendship in our culture. Since the founding of our republic, Americans have been under the sway of a heresy that originated with the Protestant revolt against Catholicism that may be called individualism or the cult of the self. Eloquent expressions of it may be found in the writings of the New England transcendentalists, Emerson, Thoreau, or the poetry of Walt Whitman. It inspires libertarian political ideology, free market economics, and a lot of advertising copy, the cult of the self. The individual, the individualist heresy, is in the air we breathe. Like any heresy, the cult of self is the distortion of an article of Christian faith. It's the distortion of a truth, in this case, the truth of the unique value of each person, rooted in the doctrine of creation, whereby human beings are created not as a species, But as individuals, such that human family is more accurate a collective term for us than human race. Detached from the doctrine of creation, the unique value of each person becomes a cult of the inward turning self. A post Christian world is made up of separate individuals trying vainly, absent faith in God, to reconnect. A clear evidence of this would be the explosive popularity of social media. Bishop John Conley of Lincoln, Nebraska, spoke to the Courage Conference of 2012 on the role of friendship in the new evangelization. He began by quoting a series of studies that indicate alarming trends towards social isolation. For example, an 800% increase in the number of single-person households since 1950 in the U.S. Census. A survey reporting problems with loneliness among more than 60% of younger people. Another survey reported a 150% increase in the number of Americans who said they did not have a close friend with whom to discuss important topics. Bishop Conley was addressing people struggling with same-sex attractions, who are trying to live chaste lives. That's the apostolate of courage. He correctly perceived that social isolation was a major issue, in particular for these people in their lives. And one of the five goals of courage is to foster a spirit of fellowship in which we may share with one another our thoughts and experiences and so ensure that no one will have to face the problems of homosexuality alone. I had some time as a chaplain of a courage group, and I can tell you that the two main things that help a person to be freed from the obsessive pursuit of same-sex love is first to cultivate the friendship of God through prayer, and two, to cultivate non-erotic friendships, both with people who share their struggle for chastity and even better with people of the same sex who do not share their condition. It can be liberating for a man who identifies himself as gay to discover Christian fellowship with other men who don't. So let us finally ask, what is friendship in the Christian sense? And how is it related to our Lord's command to love God above all and our neighbor as ourselves? To find an answer, I shall call upon the two saints I mentioned at the beginning who can guide us, John Henry Newman and Thomas Aquinas. Cardinal Newman is well known for his friendships. There are 32 big volumes of his letters published by the Oxford University Press that testify to these friendships. They were men and women people of high or low estate, Catholics, Protestants, and skeptics. Above the altar in his private chapel in the Birmingham Oratory, you can still see many little photographs and portraits of his friends. On one side, those who were still living, and on the other side, those who had died. He wanted to remember his friends whenever he said Mass. Newman had a best friend his fellow oratorian, Ambrose St. John, who died about 30 years before he did, and in whose grave he arranged to be buried. He's been criticized for having a particular friend in his religious community, and even suspected by some writers of having a homosexual relation to him. But in reply, passing over that suspicion as beneath content I think Newman would have said, what friend is there who is not particular? Both Newman and St. Thomas approach the love our Lord commands, love of both God and neighbor in terms of friendship. As we shall see in Newman's case, the approach to Christian love is from below, that is from his keen analysis of ordinary human experience. In Aquinas' case, the approach is from above, from what God has revealed to us in Jesus Christ. I don't want to exaggerate that contrast because both of these holy men are attentive both to revelation and to human experience. And in their different approaches, they both adhere to the principle that grace always builds on and perfects nature. So now, John Henry Newman, Two days after Christmas, on St. John's Day in 1831, in his third year as pastor of the University Church of St. Mary in Oxford, Newman preached a sermon called The Love of Relations and Friends. He begins by pointing out that St. John the Beloved was the private and intimate friend of Christ. And here's how he goes on. Quote, Much might be said on this remarkable circumstance. I say remarkable because it might be supposed that the Son of God Most High could not have loved one man more than another, or again, if so, that he would not have had only one friend, but as being all holy, he would have loved all men more or less in proportion to their holiness. Yet we find our Savior had a private friend, and this shows us first how entirely he was a man, as much as any of us in his wants and feelings. And next, there is nothing contrary to the spirit of the gospel, nothing inconsistent with the fullness of Christian love in having our affections directed in a special way towards certain objects, towards those whom the circumstances of our past life or some peculiarities of character have endeared us. There have been men before now who have supposed Christian love was so diffusive as not to admit of concentration upon individuals, so that we ought to love all men equally. And many there are who, without bringing forward any theory, yet consider practically that the love of many is something superior to the love of one or two, and neglect the charities of private life, while busy in the schemes of an expansive benevolence. Now this is what Patricia Snow called telescopic philanthropy, what is commonly called humanitarianism, or more derisively, do-goodism. Now I shall here maintain, Newman says, in opposition to such notions of Christian love, and with our Savior's pattern before me, that the best preparation for loving the world at large and loving it duly and wisely is to cultivate an intimate friendship and affection towards those who are immediately about us. The plan of divine providence is to ground what is good and true in religion and morals on the basis of our good natural feelings, grace building on and perfecting nature. And so of the love of our fellow Christians and of the world at large, it is the love of kindred and friends in a fresh shape which has this use, if it had no other, that it is the natural branch on which a spiritual fruit is grafted. Love is a habit and cannot be attained without actual practice, which on so large a scale is impossible. We see then how absurd it is when writers talk magnificently about loving the whole human race with the comprehensive affection of being the friends of all mankind and the like, Such vaunting professions, what do they come to? That such men have certain benevolent feelings toward the world, feelings and nothing more, nothing more than unstable feelings, the mere offspring of an indulged imagination, which exists only when their minds are wrought upon and are sure to fail them in the hour of need. This is not to love men, it is but to talk about love. The real love of man must depend on practice and therefore must begin by exercising itself on our friends around us, otherwise it will have no existence. By trying to love our relations and friends, by submitting to their wishes, though contrary to our own, by bearing with their infirmities, by overcoming their occasional waywardness by kindness, by dwelling on their excellences and trying to copy them, Thus it is that we form in our hearts that root of charity which though small at first may like the mustard seed at last even overshadow the earth. The vain talkers about philanthropy just spoken of usually show the emptiness of their profession by being morose and cruel in the private relations of life which they seem to account as subjects beneath their notice. Far different indeed, far different unless it be a sort of irreverence to contrast such dreamers with the great apostle whose memory we're today celebrating. Utterly the reverse of this fictitious benevolence was his elevated and enlightened sympathy for all men. We know he celebrated for his declarations about Christian love. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. God is love and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. Now did John begin with some vast effort at loving on a large scale? No, he had the unspeakable privilege of being the friend of Christ. Now I hope that you've enjoyed hearing Newman's incomparable oratory. As with the Fathers of the Church, you find his theology mostly in his sermons, which are eminently quotable. Now, you can't quote Aquinas with the same effect, because his theology is found in academic texts, precise, analytic, profound, and dry. Beneath his articles and questions, though, you can sense the warmth and wonder of his faith, and this is especially true of his treatment of charity the love of God and neighbor, the greatest of the virtues in the second part of the second part of the Summa Theologiae, questions 23 to 27, if you'd like to look it up when you get home. St. Thomas defines the love of God and neighbor, charity, simply as friendship. Thomas was original in this. And open to the obvious objection, friendship is particular, where Christian love is universal. But he was determined to defend his unconventional opinion because he was having to account for these well-known words of Jesus from the Gospel of St. John. This is my commandment, that you love one another. Specifically, you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends." You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, but the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. John 15, 12 to 15. God's revelation of himself in Christ, the wonderful reality that is the object of our faith, Is God the infinite, omnipotent, (coughs) omniscient creator acting to build up a friendship, fundari amicitia, to build up a friendship with us, his human family? To quote the Dominican Cardinal Schoenborn of Vienna in an address he made to students here in the United States, the great thing about St. Thomas' image of God is that he sees God not only as the first cause, but also is so powerful and great as to be able to give his creatures the power themselves to be causes and to be able to act, not just passively reacting to himself, the highest principles. And since the nature of friendship has to be mutual, it is necessary that God's bid for friendship with us be met with a response on our part, love answering to love. We love because he first loved us, as St. John says. The revelation of God's love for us in Christ has power to awaken in our human faculties the ability to love God in return. This is the infused virtue of charity, which creates a bond of friendship with the Lord. And this in turn enables us to love one another as he loves us, to extend the vertical bond of divine friendship horizontally to other people. How is it that St. Thomas answers the question whether God ought to be loved more than our neighbors? He asked that question in question 1226, article two, quotation. Now the friendship of charity is based on the sharing of beatitude, blessedness, supreme happiness, which consists essentially in God as its first principle, from whom it devolves to all those who are capable of beatitude. And so it's principally God who is to be loved out of charity and we love our neighbors as participants with us in the shared good that depends mainly on God. I think St. Thomas would agree with Newman that these horizontal bonds with other people begin with particular people, our family, our group, our own community. And then in proportion as our love for God increases, so does the scope of our attention to our fellow human beings, including enemies whom we come to love in God because and as God loves them. You can see how different this is from telescopic philanthropy, humanitarianism, or do-goodism, For one thing, to love our fellow men, who are all sinners like us, to love them in God because and as God loves them, is going to involve some form of suffering with them and for them, some offering of reparation with Jesus on the cross. And another thing that is necessarily involved with what St. Thomas teaches about charity, this divine and human friendship, is the purifying of our hearts. When by grace the heart is opened to the love of God in Christ, process of conversion is initiated, whereby every spiritual faculty, our memory, our intellect, and our will, is redirected toward the Lord Jesus and brought into captivity to him, as St. Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 10. So finally, let us ask, where would St. Thomas, and blessed John Henry Newman, direct us to experience the love of God as divine and human friendship. Without doubt, it would be to the Holy Eucharist, to the Mass. And here are some quotes to end with. The first was St. Thomas's Eucharistic hymn, "Verbum Supernum." The heavenly word proceeding forth, yet leaving not his father's side, and going to his work on earth has reached at length life's eventide. By false disciple to be given to foemen for his blood athirst, himself the living bread from heaven, he gave to his disciples first. In twofold form of sacrament, he gave his flesh, he gave his blood, that man of soul and body blent might wholly feed on mystic food. In birth, man's fellow man was he, his meat while sitting at the board. He died our ransomer to be, he reigns to be our great reward. And then from Blessed John Henry Newman, from the dream of Jonasius O wisest love, that flesh and blood which did in Adam fall should strive afresh against the foe, should strive and should prevail. And that a higher gift than grace should fled flesh and blood refine God's presence and his very self, and essence all divine. Amen.
0: Father, thank you so much for a wonderful talk. We very much appreciate it. Get a round of applause for fun. If you're willing, uh, perhaps we have a few moments to take questions before adjourning for a reception at the uh, Adult Education Room. Uh, I was just consulting on our microphone capacities. Uh, it seems the consensus is the easiest way would be for us to just take question here and then all repeated into the microphone, so it's on the record. Uh, So if anyone has any questions, feel free to just raise your hand. Not all at once, please. No, really, please restrain yourselves. There are limits, ladies and gentlemen. Well, Father, I would like to ask one question at least while they're contemplating uh, for a minute or two. Uh, Could you consider why there's often been considered a tension as you mentioned in uh, your transition in talking about St. Thomas Aquinas, between Christian charity, agape, and the more classical idea of philia, particular friendship, because of this notion that the demands of Christian charity are more universal and particular friendship is somehow more exclusive in such a way that prevents you from loving your neighbor as you ought, and that the Christian tradition talks more of family relationships, of Disciple relationships, of neighbor relationships. Friendship seems more classical, more pagan, uh, more civic. Could you consider that? Okay, sure.
1: Um, so, first of all, uh, Saint Thomas makes uh, in his in his treatment of love, charity, he makes a fundamental distinction between the love of desire. That is, we love someone uh, for what that person can. Give to us and the love of charity, um, strictly speaking, which is the love of someone, as it were, for what we can give to that person. Um, one other thing, which is a very important factor in his, his discussion of friendship, is that a friendship is, strictly speaking, the, the sharing of goods between two people. Um, so that Uh, It's always mutual, and the sharing of goods, especially the highest good, which he calls beatitude, eternal uh, happiness, uh, is is what uh, makes uh, uh, friendship, what makes Christian charity friendship. And so um, I think it's helpful, I think St. Thomas and Newman basically agree in this, to see that the process by which we grow into uh, perfection of Christian love is through the experience of uh, our interactions with one another, with our families, with our friends, with our neighbors. That's where we learn what it means to love another person for what, as it were, we can give that person and for what we share together. Um, I would think in that sense that the love of marriage, um, though, of course, it may begin in the, uh, with, with erotic desire, the love of desire, uh, if it's going to survive and prosper throughout life, it's going to have to be, become a friendship in that sense. And when Newman speaks of this, he says that um, it's only on that natural sort of um, uh, experience and that natural effort that the spiritual um, branch gets um, rooted in nature. So a person who is very good at the at Christian love in a universal sense is going to, have a per, going to be a person who learned in the school of particular friendships.
0: Another question. Uh, St. Augustine often talked about the sense in which we have this desire to be mutually understood, for our hearts to be open to another person, and yet it's continually frustrated by the opacity that we have to other people. Uh, and this can often create, I, I sense, a, a real frustration or a weight on our friendships, on our significant relationships with people because of that sense of burden or that sense of misunderstanding. How does divine friendship or friendship in God or spiritual friendship work upon that or, or develop that or change that?
1: I'm sure that Augustine was thinking about the relationship of our Lord with Judas there. Uh, so, uh, when, when our Lord said, I, I don't call you servants anymore, I'll call you friends, he was including Judas when he said that. Uh, though he knew, of course, that Judas was going to betray him, and so uh, his suffering, his own spiritual suffering, which he accepted uh, as part of the cross, uh, would have been uh, the refusal of Judas and others, but Judas in particular, to um, accept the gift of his love. So, you know, a uh, kind of refusal to accept the gift of another person's love for you is really um, a, uh, brings on a suffering. So, if you, if you believe the suffering is inherent in life in this world under the conditions of sin, friendship is a risky business. Indeed. Um, now, perhaps the most, the most iconic symbol of Christian love that we have had in this uh, last few years is Mother Teresa. And um, I'm sure that if any of you have heard her speak or read any of her books, you will find that I heard her say one time, um, you know, God isn't asking you to love the people of India. He's not asking you to love the people of the slums. He's asking you to love the people you live with,
0: (laughs) you know. It's much more difficult. Yes. (laughs) Are there any further questions? Yes. Just to repeat for the record, the question is about the difficulty of attention in friendship, especially in a virtual age where the use of the word friend seems to have shifted considerably. So even for those of us who may not be on Facebook or don't engage in as many of these virtual forms of friendship, how does that mutual gaze or that quest for attention uh, affect us uh, in an age where attention deficit seems to be always getting redder?
1: Well, when you're paying attention to someone on your Facebook page, um, uh, you, you may be thinking about that person and, and verbally communicating that person, but uh, you're not uh, paying attention to the person as person. Um, I, I would say that people are so caught up in the wonder marvel of uh, social media technology, uh, can can easily forget that there's some something missing, uh, and that's the person in front of you, and uh, the only way of having truly mutual relationships is for the person to be there. Um, now, I, I would say probably an exception to this would be the the old fashioned letter writing, um, so. Newman was famous for his letters, 32 huge volumes of letters. Um, And and the older members of my family were all faithful letter writers. I got a letter from my mother every week for her whole life. Um, And I regret to say that I didn't respond to all of them. But letters, I think, contain the person in a way that the screen does not. It's hard to define what That means the letter actually is the work of the person's hand, you know, and the person has touched it, and, you know, uh,
0: anyway. I'm sorry, yes. How does one deal with betrayal, treachery, e.g. Psalm 55?
1: How do you deal with betrayal? Betrayal.
0: But you, my friend, with whom I shared sweet meats.
1: Yes. Um, the example, of course, is, is Jesus uh, and Judas. Uh, Jesus gave his life for Judas as much as he did for any anyone else, but it was uh, up to Judas to accept that gift or not, and he didn't, um, uh, sadly. So betrayal is one of the most painful forms of suffering known to man. Um, I would say perhaps the most painful. Um, and it's something that people are almost taking for granted when you have uh, a divorce uh, so easy in our society. When um, the kind of individualist heresy prevails and what a person considers for his own good to be more important than for the good of his family or his wife or children, then you have the possibility of betrayal without hardly thinking about it. And, and, and people are, are um, I think, um, numbing themselves, anesthetizing themselves spiritually against this suffering. And it, inclu- and it, and it, and it involves a kind of frightful Way people becoming walled off from each other. Um, I think, um, yeah, that's what I would say. It's that in our in our society, our culture is is really um, well a lot of the a lot of the classic tragedies in in, in literature uh, betrayal is a big uh, part of it. But it's almost uh, it's almost ignored in our in our contemporary culture, and and people. It also has to do with forgiveness. So forgiveness does not consist of saying, "Oh, that's all right. I understand." No, forgiveness means you know first accepting the hurt and saying, "I'm not going to hold that against you." You know. Um, but still you have to accept the hurt and live with it perhaps for the rest of your your life Um, a man I I knew in one of my parish assignments uh, came to talk to me once and and he was say in his 60s had adult children and about um, 15 years earlier his wife had left him for a younger man and um, he had not remarried he had He had not um, done anything to prevent his wife coming back to him. He said, she's welcome to come back. Um, I've forgiven her. Um, But he said an interesting thing. He said, I don't think my life would have been um, nearly as rich spiritually, humanly, as it has been if I'd said, okay, that's all right, and go out and find another wife, you know,
0: Yeah. God works through suffering. I think we might have time for one more question. Yes, sir. In the Latin Church, we prize uh, celibacy so that uh, the priest can devote himself to God with an undivided heart. Yes. But in the Eastern
1: Catholic rites, we allow married clergy. Is there a difference there? Is the quality of love split in some way?
0: As a Melkite, I'd like to repeat this question for you. Um, In the Latin church, they uh, prefer celibacy uh, for certain reasons, Uh, mainly for an undivided heart, the emphasis in the clergy. In the Eastern Catholic churches, we uh, tend to allow uh, married clergy, at least uh, up to not in the episcopate obviously um, but what's the what's the importance of this for a witness level uh, for friendship for an undivided heart for uh, the sacerdotal meaning of friendship with Christ um,
1: obviously it's possible to love God and neighbor with undivided heart uh, whatever your state of life uh, whether you're a layperson or a priest or a religious or man or woman. Um, Married or single. So um, that's what it means to love God with your whole heart, whole mind, soul, strengthen your neighbor as yourself. So um, I think the difference between the Eastern and Western um, practice as far as uh, celibacy is concerned um, has to do with, first of all, a kind of practical reason that. Uh, it, it, was, it was explained to me one time, that, so I, and I, I didn't know this until someone explained it to me, that in the uh, age of persecution, which especially affected the Latin church in the earliest centuries um, in Rome, for example, um, the uh, bishops and priests, if they were married, had to really think twice about whether they were going to uh, accept uh, death for the sake of the faith because it would affect their families as well. They weren't free, as free as a celibate would be to accept uh, uh, death for the faith. Uh, Same was true of the virgin martyrs at the time in Rome. It's not to say that it would be impossible, but you know, if I were if I, were to, if I were a married man, um, I would be um, have to think twice about uh, subjecting my family to uh, a lot of the things that a priest has to accept as part of his ministry. Um, so it's a practical thing p- fundamentally. Now I've noticed in, well, coming from the Episcopal Church where most of the priests are married, I'm talking about before women were ordained um, in the old days, um the uh, it, it's striking how much um, priesthood goes down in families. how many um, ordained men were the sons of uh, a, uh, a priest or a bishop so that um, and, and how and how many women married to to clergy were the daughters of clergy so- <laughs> It was kind of a family, the, uh, the ministry became a kind of like a family affair. And in an Eastern priest, Eastern rite priest once told me, who was married, told me that uh, only a woman who'd been brought up in the household of a priest would understand what she was taking on when she married a priest.
0: <laughs> Rather like an Anthony Trollope novel. Uh, <laughs> at that point, I think we'll draw close to the questions Well, thank Father again very much. Uh, Please. I I enjoyed this very much. Now, there there will be uh, some light uh, light refreshment available in the adult education room right across the parking lot. I rejoice to tell you that our holy pastor has returned. Uh, So that is another cause for great rejoicing. But before we adjourn, perhaps Father would be good enough to give us his blessing. Our help is in the name of the Lord
1: peace of God that passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God. And the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you and remain with you always. Amen. Go in peace.